Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, we talk with Patrick McCormick, class of 2017, mobility analyst at GoXSeed. Patrick will share with us how the spark in Mrs. Ficus's econ class his senior year at WeGo led to his interest to study econometrics and, and quantitative economics at the University of Illinois, and how he now designs statistical models to find efficiency for his company's clients. Joining us today from the class of 2017 is Patrick McCormick. Patrick, tell us what you do. Hi, I'm a mobility analyst at GoXSeed. Patrick, where did you go after we go? That was actually kind of a fun thing. Um, all throughout high school, I caddied. That was to get a scholarship. It's for uh, people who come from families that don't have a lot of money. And then you show that you have a work ethic. And so it was a full ride. And so I went to the University of Illinois, um, mostly because they told me that I was going to the University of Illinois. So I, I actually didn't visit the college until like registration day. <laughs> and uh, but we have uh, it, the the scholarship itself is like a there's a thousand of us that was like our big goal for 2020, um, but there's 120 of us that all live together at the University of Illinois. Yeah, so it's a big scholarship. Can house. I ask a, a follow up question? Yeah, that sounds like an am- amazing scholarship opportunity. But like, are d- do all of those Evans scholars? go to the University of Illinois? Or are they spread out through the country? H- how was the how was that scholarship funded to, to, to the extent that you know? It's mostly, I'd say, Big Ten schools. Um, like, that's a good rule of thumb. So like Northwestern Ohio. Um, I know we have a house at Miami of Ohio, but they're co-ed houses. And um, the, the funding actually comes from the very start. It, so Chick Evans was a, a famous golfer um, in the 30s. And he had to drop out of school to because uh, he just couldn't afford it. And so he paid for his caddies to go to college. And it just kind of turned into this thing that, you know, rich people golf. And, you know, there's these kids that are out there on during the summers waking up at 5 a.m. to go work. And it's like, hey, do you want to donate some money? And so uh, Illinois is the largest place, but it's all over the country. And uh, it's wealthy people giving a lot of money to send kids to college and it's a great scholarship. When did you start when you were uh, in high school and, and what was a typical day like for that? I started in eighth grade. Um, that's one of the caddying is one of those jobs that, you know, it's, it's mostly cash. So you can start a little bit earlier than what the government might normally know about. Um, but it, it's all in good fun. Like it's a, you're carrying a bag. It's not exactly the worst working conditions. <laughs> um, but the, uh, and I, I did it because my older brother, uh, my oldest brother, Jack, also was a Chick Evans scholar and he went to Purdue. Um, but I would 
you know, wake up at 5 a.m. And so a lot of golf courses that you might go to are like they have caddies going out all the time. And the golf course that I was working at, you might only get out on Saturday and Sunday. And so to kind of prove that I was working really hard, I also worked in the bag room. Um, and so I would like throughout the week, I was working about 40 hours a week in the bag room in addition to caddying to kind of try and prove my my work ethic to the the scholarship committee so that when I applied, uh, you know, the, the golf course gave me a glowing review and said, you know, this guy works a lot. So I was I was working probably about 60 hours a week um, for the last three summers leading up to the to the scholarship. Do you get nominated or do you apply? Uh, you apply similar to how colleges like you would apply to a college. They have a you write an essay and stuff like that. But they're uh, they're very much in touch with golf courses that have caddies. Um, so like I know there's especially like closer to the city, there's, you know, you might have Medina, which is, you know, an enormous golf club that has caddies all the time. Um, and so like they're very much in touch. And so they a lot of times they know these kids going through because it's you, you kind of declare it early on, like people know if you're trying to go for the scholarship um, and it's no big secret. And it's they're They are legitimately trying to give the scholarship to as many kids as they can. Um, like if you are in need and you've caddied, they, they're going to try and get it to you like that's and you have good grades like they, they're very generous about that. And so that's a nice part. It's no big secret. It's no like one person trying to get it over another. It's it's all inclusive and everyone supports each other. So, so you're saying that the, the Chick Evans scholarship, uh, what did it cover your, uh, most of your expenses then at uh, U of I? Yeah. So, uh, they covered everything. Um, wow. and then cause we have a house, so living expenses, it was about $3,000 a year, which is awesome. And then, uh, normally like one of the things that really gets people in their like student debt is uh, meal plans. That's how the universities get you. Um, but they, uh, I actually, uh, so this is pretty common is I worked in a sorority kitchen, so I would clean dishes and I would be able to eat the meals that their chefs made. So that's kind of the symbiotic relationship of everyone in our house would clean dishes and then we'd be able to eat the food. What, did you know what you wanted to study when you went to U of I? Uh, how open were you to uh, a particular field or uh, what was the uh, what was the decision process of selecting your major? Um, so I definitely went on a little journey. Uh, so even going into like my senior year of high school, I wanted to be an engineer like my oldest brother. And then I took a econ class with Ficus and I, I loved it. I was like, oh, this is great. I love this so much. Um, I, I was taking all these math and science classes. I was like, but this is, this is quite nice. So I knew I really liked econ, um, but I also really liked politics. So I, I started off as a poli sci econ major or like double major. And uh, I did that. Um, and I was working for a poli sci research team. And um, I will say probably having Trump as president, um, like it made me not as interested in politics. Like it was just not fun like studying politics at that time. Um, Cause I, you know, I grew up under Obama and so it was like, like whether or not that we were building an oil pipeline was like a, a big thing. And, and then it was just like crazy headlines for all of college. I was like, Oh, this isn't the type of politics that I was interested in. So I, I've mostly focused on econ and then they invented a major 
at my sophomore year that was an extension. So basically economics itself is a bachelor of arts and the, some of the econ professors didn't think that it was preparing us enough for grad school or just some of the, the larger aspects of economics. And so they created econometrics and quantitative economics, which goes from a bachelor of arts to a bachelor of science. And so my junior year is when I declared that. And I spent the, the second half of my college career because uh, I had taken all the regular econ classes. And so I, I was just taking statistics and math classes after that. So that was how I, um, it was largely, um, and then economic forecasting classes. Like it, there's a, the kind of like, oh, like f- theoretical side of econ. And then there's the hard maths side of econ. And so that's what my major turned into. And again, similar to how I was in high school, I was like, oh, I really like this. And um, so I'd already taken some stats classes, but I really doubled down, got really into the the hard math theory and forecasting and uh, really just enjoyed it. And so I figured, you know, I this is what I'm going to pursue. Did you did you find that transition? It seems like that wasn't a problem for you uh, to go there because it seems like there was kind of a, a shift in the the type of studying that you were doing, like where it, it may have been more. It wasn't that you weren't doing math before, but like it seems like you really were kind of drilling down into this kind of pattern recognition. Like how how, how could you maybe uh, describe the difference between the two once you get, really got into that the the declared major? So I would say the the big difference was, um, so in economic models, we have derivatives, which are like the explanation behind the equations. And in the theoretical classes, you don't dive that deep into them. I would say that's why you have a lot of business majors who say like, oh, like if you try to raise the minimum wage, then like unemployment will go up. And that's not necessarily always the case. And you can understand that if you do the derivatives. Um, and why that, like, there's a lot of assumptions that go in if you don't understand the math underlying all of the, what people are saying. And so uh, I guess the the short answer to all of that would be I knew what Greek letters were um, when I started doing the harder math. And by the end of it, I was very familiar and I could just like read lines of Greek letters all stacked together, like, oh, delta times kappa, like all of these things. I was like, yes, of course. Um, and you, you really have to just study textbooks, but it's, um, it's very rewarding and it does get easier. I'd say it's, it's like learning a language where when you're first starting off, you're like, this is very confusing, but uh, you realize that everyone's using the same words over and over again, and it does become clearer. What was your favorite type of research where you began to use the kind of derivative model behind it where you're like, oh, I didn't see that. That's kind of cool. Like, do you remember like what were some of your first kind of breakthroughs uh, in, in when you, you gained that kind of confidence with that? Sure. Um, I So there, there was, um, I took an economic forecasting class so that, you know, talking about how to predict stuff in the stock market. Um, and so one thing that one of my professors said, and I, I really like this because I think there's a lot of people who are into like day trading and the Robinhood app. And uh, he said, hey, guys, I have my PhD in this. And 
Like you may be thinking, oh, if we can just use these models, we can predict what's going to be in the future. He's like, if you can predict what the price is going to be tomorrow exactly, or even relatively closely, like if you know it's going to go up or down, you could be a billionaire. Like that that's that's how it works because you could just bet on that. Like that would just be he's like, and I have a PhD in this. If I knew that, I would be a billionaire. So when you see people just trading on their phones, understand that they're just gambling. And uh, then we we really got into it in the whole trying to predict what was going to happen tomorrow based on what information we had today. And um, it was just this moment of like, you can start to understand how little we know about the world. Like basically by just seeing kind of what's underneath the hood. You know, that's like you see all these numbers and charts on uh, CNBC. And now I, when I see it, I, I know um, what those numbers are. And like Bloomberg is like the financial accounting software website thing. Um, and I remember using it and their forecasting, like I know how that model was made. And I like I remember thinking, oh, this is a semi inaccurate model. Like they're not accounting like deeper and like you could do this with a calculator, um, the, the numbers that you're giving. And that's what a lot of the world runs on, which is kind of fun that it's this really basic model. And, you know, like you kind of know how the, the chain makes the bike wheels move. Are the tools that you use now in your job different than the ones that you used in your undergrad in terms of figuring out projections and calculations? In addition, so the software is largely open source. Like you can just download it from the internet. Uh, the the difference, so like we were talking about like Bloomberg and uh, how you might create that is, um, so basically it's all about how much information you want to put into your model. And so um, my best guess of how much a dollar bill is going to be worth today or, or tomorrow is what it was worth today. Like whether or not it's going to go up a, up a penny or down a penny is my best guess is whatever the price was today. Um, and so going farther back, you can kind of start to track like how much did it change each day over the course of the last week. And then you're kind of flipping that on itself. So like the variation over seven days over in the past, flipping that over and using that to predict the next seven days. And uh, Bloomberg, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think they were only using like two days in the past and like their quarterly reports or it, it was like you, you could see that like, oh, you guys are just taking the average of the numbers that I can see and adding them and then adding them together. And that's uh, it works like that's the basis of how forecasting works, but it's very weak and undetermined way to forecast something they're not taking a lot of risk like the the more accurate you try to be um it's kind of like you're saying like i think i can predict this more accurately and by not really diving into the water diving into the deep end you can't be wrong um they're just being very general and um it's much easier to be much more specific than what they are but that's like on tv shows um that's what they're using is these basic forecasting patterns of like, oh, it was, it was that yesterday. So it'd probably be something like that tomorrow. You know, like the, the stock went up yesterday. So tomorrow, yeah, probably. 
So that seems to be like a, a, a key variable is, you know, just looking at past performance and, and, and record uh, of that. Are there, are there any other kind of foundational variables that you kind of look at in conjunction with that that seem to have the most either stability or volatility? So I, I guess this would be getting into the, um, the, the, the stats of it, but so like you'd have your initial equation. So like Y equals MX plus B. So like the equation of a line, um, that would be like the general model. Like that's what we were talking about just now. Um, but then with anything, there's random variation. So like, you know, something random is going to happen and you can't really predict that. Um, but you can try and predict the random variation based on the previous day's random variation. So like if, you know, yesterday it went up by two, like a stock went up by $2, um, you might go, oh, well, it went up by this percentage by a random error term. Like that's just the randomness. The randomness of tomorrow is probably going to be similar. So like kind of the size of the jumps are relative. Like, so if, you know, the stock market plunged by like half today. Like, I don't think it's going to fully rebound tomorrow. I think it's probably going to keep going down. And so you use that, that random variation to mirror itself in addition to the actual model. So it's, you're using like, uh, kind of, kind of the two parts of like, I, like if I go for a run, I think I'm going to feel pretty good but I could always twist my ankle. And if I twist my ankle yesterday, it's probably not feeling great today. So I can kind of use that to help predict whether or not I'm going to twist my ankle tomorrow. But the difference is like, I know how my body will run. Whether or not I randomly twist my ankle is a separate thing, but now it's more likely because I've seen it happen. And so, well, you just, you just warmed your old English teacher's heart by using a metaphor to explain an abstract idea. So that was, uh, that was excellent. <laughs> Patrick, did you have any like internships? Like, so once you kind of declare the major in this new major, I should say at U of I, did you, did you uh, kind of try this out in any internships uh, over that last part? Um, actually, no. So I, I kind of went on a, my, my college journey was not, um, I would say a, a, a standard or picture perfect. I actually, so I spent my first two summers in college, um, doing standup and writing at second city, um, in the city, um, and, and doing comedy stuff, um, which was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And then my junior year summer, I was, uh, trying to get an, or sorry, the summer going into my senior year that that's when it would have lined up. Um, I was trying to get an internship, but then COVID happened and uh, all of the potential yeah. internships dried up. And then that's when Francis, who he's a, a friend of mine, he's uh, a veteran. He was running the security company, but he was really struggling to uh, keep track of all the independent contractors he was working with. And so I just helped him start managing the personnel of the company. And so I, I largely took on the computer side and the, the management of Yarl security. And so I, you know, what was initially an unfortunate summer uh, because of COVID turned into a pretty exciting experience helping to run a startup. So let's go back to your time doing some stuff at Second City. How did you start that? I was really sick uh, the spring semester of my freshman year. And I kind of just was in my room 
and I was watching a lot of comedies. I was kind of like, man, I, I really enjoy this. Like, this is really fun. And my cousin who, uh, she did stuff at second city. I was talking to her cause I was kind of like, yeah, I, I don't have anything going on. And she's like, Oh, well you should, you should go over to second city. Like I, you know, I had a great time there. And so I, uh, um, I took a class, but then I, I, uh, met up with a bunch of standups and we were writing and, um, I did that for two summers and it was, a it was a fun experience, you know, doing improv and stand up and writing skits. How, how does one approach writing comedy? Like, so is that more of a, like, do you, where do you find like the, 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 the seed of an idea or is it some of it iterative where you have to almost like, uh, it's better when other people in the room and you can kind of build ideas off of each other. Like, how did you find your best comedy ideas? Uh, where did that come from? Sure. Um, so this was something, uh, that was kind of taught to me, but, um, it, it's that, uh, the, the foundation of like, if you're writing a comedy skit is that it, it should be something real or that you should have an opinion. Um, and so I found that it was easier to write, but then also that the skits turned out better when I started off with an idea. Like I remember my mom was complaining, uh, she works in a hospital and it was about how the doctors were, uh, like she regularly, uh, she's been working at the hospital forever. So she knows a lot and you get a young doctor who, um, wants to be a doctor, but my mom knows more cause she's been working with me, like babies and breastfeeding mothers forever. And so, uh, I just thought like, Oh, well I'll write a skit about how doctors just think they're better. Like, or like that, but it'll be the, um, but we know that obviously that's not always the case. And so it turned into this fun sketch of a doctor just being, really mean to a nurse, but, um, it actually got, uh, like people thought it was really funny and we, we did a little performance of it and, uh, but having an opinion or like, like, uh, just something weird that you notice or like, uh, a given that people might assume and building off of that is the foundation. And then you can add the comedy in later, but if you don't have a, a basis for what you're trying to write, it's really hard to get anything down on paper. Yeah, I think I remember George Carlin called this something like um, Vujade, right? Where it's kind of like you start with the banality of something and you kind of build the absurdity out of it. You know, whereas like instead of deja vu, you kind of go like the other way around it. It sounds very similar uh, to that. Is there is there anything that you kind of kind of cognitively bring from the type of creativity that you do that you did with comedy and, and bring that over into what you do now? Um, yeah, I think they are uh, completely separate. <laughs> the main thing is probably just talking with adults. I, I like up until that point, I had mostly talked with like, I would say teachers and then people my age. And so it was my first real out in the world experience of just dealing with, you know, people living every day. Like, uh, one guy I did stand up with, um, he was a chef, um, but his roommates were all stand-up comedians. And um, so like he was, they were encouraging him to go out and we went to this rooftop uh, stand-up and it was just like all these young comedians who were really trying to make it. And it was, um, you know, they're, I guess, kind of my age now, which is interesting, but I, I just was so young. Like, you know, like I, I, my, most of my experiences were, uh, either being around just as naive college students or high schoolers. So it was, 
uh, people just acting in the world and no one trying to really prove anything to people, which was a weird experience because they're, they're just adults. Um, and so I, I think that was a, a big maturing phase for me was being around. And I don't think anyone in society considers people doing stand up the most mature people in society, but to me, they were really very much adults. Um, so yeah, it was a very good experience. Yeah. So I, I think what I take is that um, I just got to be in the adult world. Now, your senior year, did you have like to do a, a senior thesis in your in your field? Or, like, was, was there some type of exiting project that you had to do? I studied um, Pope Francis's visit to Ecuador in 2015. Um, and so it, my I, I studied religiosity or basically what causes people to be religious all throughout college um, as kind of an econ event. And so uh, my goal was to figure out whether or not um, Pope Francis's visit, he gave a speech about how um, the the government should be more for the people. Um, It was something that was kind of a hot topic in Ecuador at the time with the, the president and whatnot. And it turns out a month afterwards, there's this huge values survey that was done. And like about a a year previous, they had done the same survey. And so I had this excellent survey data and I was able to look at um, basically like, did people's opinions change um, based on the Pope's visit? Cause like there, there's, you know, like 1.5 billion Catholics in the world. um, And if the Pope comes and visits you, does it make a difference in what you feel? And we know it makes a difference like immediately, but I guess like if the Pope comes in and says like, Hey, I disagree with what your president's doing. Like, does it actually change Catholics minds? Cause that's an important uh, question you have to ask is like, what are the purposes of the Pope's visit if he doesn't make a difference? And um, so I, I wasn't able to conclude anything super concrete, but uh, I like to think that uh, he did make a slight difference. And that if my data was a bit more specific, if I had, a, you know, a bunch of money and I could have done it before and afterwards, um, people would have thought that they were a bit more displeased with the government because the Pope said they should be. I mean, it's, it seems like, yeah, that was just a matter of having the resource to be able to get the information that you were seeking, you know, like you needed time and kind of the, the longitudinal aspect of getting that data that you're looking for. But what a cool inquiry, you know, to see, you know, does, does that, does what happens in the minds of the recipients of his message have something that is sustainable more than what happens in the week or weekend that he was there? Uh, that's 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 really that's really kind of cool. So then, when did you? How did you find your current position? So I was uh, I was working at Yarl, um, which is the security company uh, that I work at, um, and. Uh, we were doing work, but, um, and we've been doing well, but we haven't been doing well enough where I could like, like it was, I could take enough money out of the company to pay myself. Um, like we, we, we have been making money and it, it's been very good and it's, um, but I realized I, I had to go get a job somewhere else. And so I've been helping with Yarl on the side and, um, a lot of the stuff I already did is, kind of automated or already done 
uh, as far as the infrastructure of how we manage personnel in the company. So I don't need to be as hands-on anymore. Um, and so I was just applying for jobs and I, I found this company, GoExceed, um, just on, actually, a, I think a recruiter found me um, and she said, hey, I think you'd be good for this position. What is GoExceed? What do they do? Uh, so um, it's awesome. I actually, I love GoExceed. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like a commercial here for a second. Basically, Verizon and AT&T and to an extent now T-Mobile um, uh, businesses have tons of phones. Like, uh, you know, they'll have like 10,000 phones because they're a construction company or they're a service company and people need data out in the field or whether or not they're working. And um, just like they they will on your phone bill for your own personal use, uh, Verizon and AT&T will charge you so much money and it's really hard to manage your bill because their websites are impossible to use and it's very easy to overspend. And so this company, uh, they take off on average 15 to 30% off these companies' phone bills um, just by actively managing and restructuring these companies' phone plans. So then what do you do to then uh, oversee that type of efficiency? Yeah. Um, actually, sorry. One last thing is, is just kind of a fun anecdote. Um, one of our, our bigger companies, when we first got them and like Verizon is like told my boss who like helped negotiate their new contract, um, since we've been handling their data, their phone bill monthly has gone down by half a million dollars. Um, just for the, the size and scalability of how expensive those phone bills get. Um, and that's, that was like, they're still paying a lot, but that's, yeah. Um, so a ton of money. That, that just tells you the, the, how much they are that's going out to that one expenditure and what's right. being allocated to that. Oof. Yeah. Um, but so what I do is, um, so I, I have clients of my own, so I manage accounts. Um, so I make sure that, and that they're not having overages um, during the month. Um, I, like that's, I would say kind of my central role, but then in addition to that, um, you know, we're, uh, always trying to improve our analysis of how these companies are working. So, uh, one of my big, uh, projects that I actually just, uh, finished the kind of rough draft of today, like it's made, but I gotta make it better. Um, just more user-friendly, I guess, um, is, uh, when we get in new companies and so when we're, and then companies that we've had for a while is, um, basically there's your phone can either be on an unlimited plan or pooled, which is, um, all of your phones have a certain amount of data and they add up together. Like everyone gets a little glass of water. And if you dump them into a pool, then you have a nice little pool. Um, and so it's balancing that and, to optimize their needs and then also their price points. And I've, I've built a computer program that does that automatically. So as to give them the cheapest possible plan, because before it was just these analysts going in and um, kind of doing it by hand, like we have general models, but this computer program that I've made does it by itself. And so it, it largely automates the initial analysis of these companies the 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 vendor who is selling the data are they eager to see that that the to give up that 
type of revenue or are they uh, or are they, are they okay with that because then it maybe it frees up that bandwidth to give it to other customers like I'm wondering what that dynamic is because you know if you're saying oh I, I'm 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 spending five hundred thousand dollars less that's not five hundred thousand dollars coming to me um, but even though you saved it for your client does the vendor are they being more resistant to that or do they find that also helps them in some way they're partially indifferent I'm sure they're they're annoyed I'm sure they like having their money. But I think in a, in a casino sense, the house always wins. Um, Cause even when we're saving <laughs> money, they're just raking in money and, uh, and there's not that many options about who you can go. And it's super inconvenient to try and move all your phones to a different company. So um, a lot of it is like them threatening, like, we know you're not going to go anywhere. And it's come to a, a, in a few cases where it's like, Hey, listen, Verizon just, they're not going to give you money back and they're, they're giving you this poor deal. We can negotiate it with AT&T. Um, we can get you a better rate plan. And then suddenly Verizon's real angry because we're porting, you know, 2000 lines over to uh, AT&T, which is the size of a small town. How, how do you get your projects? I mean, does, does someone say, Patrick, I need you to work on this or how, how does the work come to you um, uh, daily? So, um, I, like, this is partially why I really like where I'm working is um, our projects are kind of just what aggravate us. Um, like, that that was the, the reason I started working on this optimization for when phone plans come in is because uh, companies are growing and they're shrinking and they're getting rid of lines. And so uh, when we do our initial analysis and bring companies in, um, if they're adding a hundred lines every month, cause they're just growing and we have companies that are doing that, um, in three months, that analysis is useless. It's, it's a completely flawed model. And so I felt, and doing the analysis is a pretty time consuming process. And so I talked to my boss and I said, Hey, I'm, you know, like if the, like, this is economics here, uh, like they, they hired me for my data, but I was like, you know, if we're these are prices. And so the computer can figure this out for us. Like it's where the optimal point is to put people on unlimited plans versus uh, another cheaper plan and uh, how much data you're getting out of each device. And uh, so the model works well. Um, I definitely have some improving to do on it, but it already does very well for itself um, and comes under some of our models now, which I'm very pleased with. Um, and it's just because I was like, oh, this is inconvenient. The uh, now, do you do you work in the office or are you in remote uh, um, a remote office from your apartment? Like, what's what's the current work situation? Yeah, so I come in once a week on Tuesdays, um, and uh, but otherwise I, I work remote um, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Patrick, where would you see yourself maybe in five, 10 years? Um, well, I really like GoExceed. Um, so, and they're growing very well. Um, it's, we offer a very good product. And uh, right now, so like in addition to the models I'm making, I'm, I'm learning languages. Uh, since I've been there, I've, I've learned uh, SQL, DAX, and M. DAX and M are kind of like uh Power BI, which is like data visualization done by Microsoft. Um, and then M is more specifically in Excel. Um, so I, I like to be with them because I 
I'm learning a lot and there's a lot of opportunity just to do things and play around. And it's a very encouraging environment. And in 10 years, I guess I would like to be doing something similar where I'm, you know, coding in uh, data. Um, but uh, I guess at a higher level where I know more. And I guess I, I should also clarify. So there's kind of like two, like I work with data and I'm a data analyst, but I, I would say I'm like, there's people who try to like, there's predictive where like, oh, based on this information, I'm going to predict this. And then what I'm doing right now with SQL, which is like, I'm more like a plumber where I'm building the pipes to the house. So the data knows where to go and we can get the information when we want to turn on the faucet. Um, so clients are getting their information and that it, it all looks good and nice. And so um, I guess that it would be data management in a sense. Um, but I really enjoy it because it's um, it, it's a very cerebral process of like trying to build a house where you're like, oh, well, if I want to look if I want this data in this place, I got to go build this thing. And so then, oh, wow, I just built like a little overhead lamp with a fan. Um, and it's it's very it's so much fun. I, I really enjoy my work and the people that I'm with. Yeah, I think that comes through loud and clear that this incredible sense of gratification that you have that you you I mean even though you're not building something tangible, you are building something that has an actionable result that uh that can be moved upon when that data is visualized and can serve your clients and like you said you're learning the language that creates the outcomes. I mean that that's real, you know. So I think that's got to be so like I said, very gratifying uh, to see that, and 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 you get to tinker more and more as as the tools get better, as your wisdom and proficiencies grow. I think that's just so exciting. Yeah. So, Patrick, I like to end the interview with uh, uh, the question for for you, which is, what type of advice would you give current Wildcats for success? It's it's okay if you don't know what you want to do, but you should be doing something. Um, I think that's like one thing that, um, you know, while I was like, you know, I was doing stand up and improv and writing and I, like, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was like, man, I'm getting a degree in economics, but I'm just telling jokes and I like, am I going to be doing this? But I met a lot of wonderful people and, uh, especially some of those connections, like that's helped me, uh, at Yarl security. I have a pretty good network of people. And so you know, as long as you're doing something that's, uh, you're, you're growing your character, your human capital as a, an economist would put it. And that's important because that's what you're worth. Ah, that's, that's great. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. I've learned a ton. This was a, a really fascinating discussion and, uh, I don't know, I might have to interview you again in a couple of years to see what other new cool things that you've built, uh, at Exceed. Cause this is really, uh, it's always fun to talk to economists cause I just love the processes by which they can, as you said, find the, the derivatives behind, uh, the things that are occurring. So I thought that was really cool. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at We Go Places Podcast or on Twitter 
at WeGoPlaces.